so billiard, uh, billiards, uh, cricket, it's with, they have the mallets with the, the iron. I, I don't know if I'm thinking if this is cricket or not. This is just shows you how much I know, but they have the, uh, the little, the little thing that you hit the ball through. You're thinking of croquet. Croquet. I'm thinking of, what am I thinking about? <laughs> yeah, you're thinking, you're thinking of croquet. Okay. That's definitely going in the podcast, by the way, Ed. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Thinking Global Podcast by E-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. I'm Kieran O'Meara and I'm going to be your host and today I'm joined by Edward Curry as my co-host. Edward Curry is an editorial assistant on the podcast team at E-International Relations and is an undergraduate student of political science at Southern New Hampshire University in the US. It's great to have you back, Ed. Hello. It's a pleasure to be back. Today, Ed and I are going to be in discussion with Dr. Sarinda Mahan, who is Assistant Professor of International Relations in the Department of Strategic and Regional Studies at the University of Jammu in India. Dr. Mahan has recently finished his book, Complex Rivalry, The Dynamics of India-Pakistan Conflict, which is published with the University of Michigan Press. There will be a link in the description box for you guys to check this out. Before we begin, if you haven't already done so, please, please don't forget to click on that little follow or subscribe button, depending on what platform you're using. That means that content will come directly to you when it's uploaded every single week from the Thinking Global podcast. Okay, let's roll. Hello, Dr. Mahan. Thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast today. It's great to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me for this uh, interesting session and this podcast. I congratulate uh, and uh, to E-International Relations for giving me this opportunity. Thank you so much. So my first question is, aside from designation as a complex rivalry, how would you characterize the relationship between India and Pakistan, both historically and contemporaneously? In my view, uh, aside from designating the India-Pakistan relations as a complex rivalry in two South Asian states, a relationship uh, can be characterized as a real politic-driven contest. Since the uh, independence, India and Pakistan's uh, foreign policies are largely rooted in realism or practices associated with it, which shape their respective political positions, uh, national identities, and unending contest or conflict. From the conduct of their foreign policies, if we look deeper or dig deeper, it is uh, apparent that the policymakers of India and Pakistan have rarely followed opposite to the practices of power politics to define and structure their bilateral relations. Alternately, alternately if uh, we can say the ruling regimes on both sides have not given much attention or value to uh, alternative paradigms to devise a sustainable mechanism for bilateral engagement. However, they have occasionally shown political will to set aside the real politics strategies to handle their salient issues. But uh, these were rare instances that remained hinged on the periphery of their foreign policies. In the uh, early years uh, succeeding the partition, uh, what determined India and Pakistan's leaning towards the real politics strategies was their violent and conflict-ridden origin as the modern states. 
coincided with the world uh, Cold War politics. The leaders in charge of shaping the policies of new states had a had to face a host of existential issues and crises in the domestic, dietic, and regional realms. Hence, uh, they devoted more attention to their harsh experiences and violent memories of the partition and accordingly carved uh, their policies to deal with the salient issues and unforeseen crises at the dietic level. Uh, and against this backdrop, the two states hurriedly identified with the measures and uh, strategic strategies, sorry, strategies having potential to limit their uh, losses, maximize advantages, and ensure national survival to defend their borders and undercut each other's advantages in the early years, despite having inadequate preparation and resources. The leadership of India and Pakistan pursued the realist strategic culture and retained it for years with little change. In the backdrop of uh, Cold War politics, this culture, combined with the varied social systems, material capabilities, strategic choices, and external intervention, has internalized the South Asian adversaries' engagement which gradually consolidated their politics and policies around the real politics strategies. So over the years and even to the present times, uh, India and Pakistan's competition under the anarchical system of security dilemma has internalized these diets policies in a real politic fashion and uh, kept the inherent antagonism intact. This uh, augmented the two states competing territory Competing, sorry, uh, this argumented the two states' competing territorial claims over Kashmir. Uh, that also arose bristling nationalism, political challenges, hostility, and outbreak of interstate wars on the one extreme, and intertwined the issues of national security and extremism, later terrorism, on the other. So I think I, I look from this perspective that other than complex rivalry. In April of this year, India surpassed China as the world's most populated country. Given this historic milestone, what implications will India, as the world's most populated democracy, have on the global and Asian regional economies? As the world's most uh, uh, populated country, now, after long words, India has both advantages and disadvantages. Advantages of having the largest human resource on Earth and disadvantages if this human resource has been not trained and skilled substantially to meet the future challenges in different domains, political, economic, technological, etc. The latter part, I mean trained or skilled human, human resource, is really a hell task for a country like India because, because of its limitations in several fields like infrastructure, innovation, sustainable technologies, and so on, in comparison to the advanced Western states and China in the Asian region. Against this backdrop, uh, India's mainstream leaders, policymakers, intelligentsia, and the key stakeholders in the society have to recognize the realities of contemporary world, which are far different from those that shaped its conflictual origin as a moderate state, as a modern state in 1947. 
and envision its uh, Indian leadership need to envision its future as a knowledge economy to face future challenges and remain relevant in the fast emerging knowledge knowledge based economic system india needs to see advanced india needs to set advanced standards of behavior and priorities which would increase its prospects to meaning, meaningfully use its vast human resource and expand its sustainable development goals on a par with the advanced or developed states for this or to achieve these milestones its skilled and innovative human resource will play a major role and the indian policymakers must work in this direction without wasting any time and this will by default also neutralize its opponents in the indo pacific region and in the world politics if india genuinely embarks on this path then there is a high possibility that its population would act as a real source of its sustainable progress uh, which will further help it to take effective measures to break out the cycle of animosity with pakistan and china or uh, negotiate compromise agreement with the rivals from the position of strength however i don't deny this a reverse scenario is also possible if china forms an anti india alliance system to target its progress in your book complex rivalry the dynamics of india pakistan conflict you outlined the origins of the indo pakistani rivalry using a hubs and spokes method that you have developed can you briefly summarize this method and describe how it can be applied to the idea of complex rivalry basically uh, the hub and spokes framework differs with the pre preponderated ideology or religion based uh, analysis and and it argues that along with ideology kashmir's territorial salience and geographical contiguity to pakistan have also played a fundamental role in interlocking india and pakistan into a rivalrous relationship once these three structural factors ideology territorial salience and geographic contiguity conjoined and evolved into a unified whole in the india pakistan case the ensuing casual process gave rise to the formation of a strong code or hub under conditions of extreme differences and hostility that keep the hub under constant stress complicate the disputants contradictory contradicted interests and thereby uh, dominate their relations against this setting the structural factors interactions and interdependencies permeate the kashmir issue to such an extent that it has become a principal contention between india and pakistan and in doing so these core factors draw in and influence temporal factors on the periphery that is uh, international strategic factors and key internal settings and in turn get affected by them perpetual interactions and interdependencies between the structural and temporal factors between which there exists a causal connection intertwines them in a dynamic process that can be better explained by developing a hub and spokes framework in which the structural ideology territory contiguity factors act as a hub and the temporal factors as spokes this framework carefully blends different variables and aspects to provide 
a theoretical explanation as to why the Indo-Pakistani rivalry came into being and how a highly structured mechanism has sustained it ever since its origin. From the standpoint of the Harbin Spokes framework, in other words, the India-Pakistan conflictual relationship can be conceptualized as a dynamic process in which the structural and temporal factors constantly interact in the context of each other. They form a centripetal and centrifugal stress by unfolding a process of change that is the gradual increase in hostility and accumulation of grievances, which escalates the disputants' oppressive behavior and engages them in an intractable con conflict that I call as the complex rivalry. This theoretical framework helps to understand the full life cycle of the India-Pakistan rivalry by looking at it uh, afresh through the lens of rivalry conception and establishing a causal connection between the structural factors uh, that is hub associated with the central contention, uh, the Kashmir issue, and the temporal factors on the periphery, which I call as scopes, the international strategic factors and the domestic uh, internal settings. The hub and spokes framework, uh, also called as uh, the complex rivalry model, offers an alternative understanding of the India-Pakistan rivalry, which also has potential to explain other rivalries and emerge as a general model or a general theory. This model shows how the structural contiguous ethno-territorial factors constituting the hub and the temporal factors as spokes coordinate and evolve an intrinsic interplay which shapes India and Pakistan's relationship as an extreme competition. Hmm, okay, interesting, interesting. Interesting talking about methodology there. So what I'd like to ask is, will India seek to counter China's power projection in the broader Asian or Southeast Asian region? And how does Pakistan's special relationship with China fit into this changing dynamic? If China would continuously abet uh, Pakistan as a hostile force against India, coupled with its objection to New Delhi's bid for permanent memberships in membership in the Nuclear Suppliers Group and the United Nations Security Council, then the deepening Sino-Pakistani strategic uh, ties have potential to further strain India's relationship with both neighbors as they share political and territorial border disputes with it. Under such circumstances, India might completely turn toward the US-led camp to neutralize Pakistan's nuclear and terror belligerents and China's regional and global aspirations, which collectively undercut uh, its interest to attain the status of strong Indian Ocean or Indo-Pacific power. Uh, at present, it seems the formation of the Quad and, the, and India's participation as a core member of the quadrilateral grouping is a step in that direction. Given these circumstances, uh, India's expanding security ties uh, in the Indo-Pacific and its weak, weak political relations and non-existential economic interdependence with Pakistan limits its options to distance itself from the United States and forge closer political ties with China. Against this backdrop or background, 
especially when the Indo-US and the Sino-Pakistani strategic equations are just opposing uh, their vital national and security interests, it may be an overestimation to expect that India, Pakistan and China would take extraordinary steps to exploit vacuums in the Asian alliance system and form a comprehensive trilateral relationship which could tie together their interest in a whole and uh, gradually seize their association with the United States dominated Asian security architecture. In fact, what I look in the immediate context, a reverse scenario seems to be more imminent wherein India as a swing state may prefer to consolidate the US position in Asia or in the Indo-Pacific Indo region in return for strong economic ties, technology, technological and military assistance and strategic alignment to become a venerable and leading Indo-Pacific power. On the other hand, China has a deep mistrust of the United States and India's strategic ambition. Thus, it is consolidating its military economic ties with Pakistan through the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, uh, CPEC, based projects and other collective security ventures to neutralize the import, uh, the, the uh, India's key issue, uh, sorry, the, the opponents in the key issue region and the northern theater of the Indian, Indian Ocean. Purely in military terms, as far as Pakistan's special relationship with China is concerned, China is overly dependent on Pakistan to overcome the Malacca dilemma, uh, state of Hormuz as well, and maximize its uh, naval capabilities by acquiring the Gwadar deep seaport for access in the Indian Ocean. From India's perspective, Pakistan and China's growing nuances uh, through the CPAC might jeopardize its security with every possibility that the People's Liberation Army, PLA, might guard Pakistan's territorial and marine borders in the pretext of China's national interest, akin to the United, United States style of guarding national interest in Asia by having multiple anti-China security bases in the Allied States. Uh, forming a security arc from Southeast to Northeast Asia uh, and consolidate, uh, Ch China might consolidate its anti-India security position in the Indian Ocean region. Uh, these equations might shape India and China's relationship in the Indo-Pacific region quite competitive in the, in the near future or in the foreseeable future. So, Dr. Mahan, before we began this interview, Ed and I were chatting about the fact that I currently have the India-Australia cricket game on in the background on mute. In fact, Labuschagne has just been caught <laughs> as I speak this right now. Now, I know from our emails that you're quite into cricket. So can you tell us a little bit about that and tell us who you support? Yes, I played cricket. Uh, I was a uh, bowler, so I was a you know uh, medium pace bowler, as well as a, a you know uh, tail ender means uh, I used to come and bat on seventh or eighth position. Uh, right now in the in domestic, yes, uh, I support India. I support, in fact, you know uh, uh, some of the teams uh, from out of subcontinent. For example, I was uh, 
supporting South Africa also. Now, as the rest of that discourse about cricket with Dr. Mahan concerned mostly the India-Australia game and how both of us wanted to see India go on to beat Australia alongside the manner in which they were going to do that, and considering that Australia went on to beat India, we didn't feel that you needed to hear us being so wrong. So we'll now return to the interview. (laughs) In outlining the four factors that you believe have contributed to the Indo-Pakistani rivalry, you write, quote, India and Pakistan's long-standing difference requires both sides to restructure and reorganize their national priorities so that their respective policymakers understand each other's position, end quote. Hypothetically, what would this understanding entail and what would it mean given their historical foreign policy priorities? Basically, by understanding, you know, uh, in the chapter number eight, where I was explaining actually how India and Pakistan have to resolve their conflict, how they have to move ahead, so I have formed a, uh, a kind of framework of steps to peace, how actually India and Pakistan would look forward. So under that, I have given three phases to de-escalate, sorry, de- transform this uh, rivalry by having three phases. One is uh, de-escalation, second is de-rivalization, and third is termination of the rivalry, and after that, the formation of a stable peace between them. So from that perspective, I was actually... Uh, proposing understanding between India and Pakistan. So uh, by this understanding, which requires a significant refinement in two states' beliefs, attitudes, goals, and actions so that the new situation in congruence with the process of change helps the two adversaries to target key domains, uh, mainly political, economic, and cultural, while concrete programs uh, to foster independent sorry, to foster inter- interdependent relations. So, for example, by transforming from de-escalation to de-rivalization to termination, uh, I call it as a, you know, interdependent phase. Uh, both adversaries, India and Pakistan, have to create a common framework by building on the agreed standards of behavior and norms they mutually set, recognize, and accomplish over the years. Once they have entered the termination phase, the major challenge for both sides is first, to fractionate their principal issues, that is, separate them and reduce their scope, and advance their accommodative strategies without engaging in any military or This kind of maturity is required on both sides. Number two, construct mechanisms that create favorable conditions to reduce the perception of threat. And lastly, that is the third one, uh, implement the risky decisions to transform their hostile relationship into a peaceful one. Once these things have been achieved, it's a kind of understanding both sides maintain by bringing, uh, you know, evolutionary, in an evolutionary manner, some kind of structural changes in their foreign policy behavior. So then, then we can just go back and see that how they can transform, not change their uh, ties. So over the last seven decades or so, we have seen that the most striking attitude, attribute of 
the Indo-Pakistani deities, its uh, resistance to change, our tendency to absorb political shocks to continue the rivalry. Uh, for the stabilization of peace in the post-termination years, if they achieve that, uh, even in the rivalization stage, there have to be forward-looking leaders to the at the helm of the power who can ably manage uh, minimal overlap in the two sides' political goals, despite having disagreements between the governments and pluralistic societies, and effectively cluster issues together to create a more favorable environment for cooperation. Their control over the state operators and the political process can facilitate similarity in the socio-political attributes to limit ideological differences and with a clear hierarchy of priorities, allow linkages among issues to continue the bilateral interactions at different levels that include the top-down and the bottom-up processes and, and the domains to attain uh, cooperative uh, outcomes. Such policy efforts support the, um, the both India and Pakistan, you know, their leaderships, policymakers, other kind of stakeholders. In fact, I have coined a term that uh, peace strategists. We have always uh, think about or we always talk about these strategists are those who are planning for conflicts and winning wars, etc. But for resolving the rivalries, which are complex, we need to have uh, peace strategists who can, uh, you know, uh, develop some kind of policies, bring both sides together, find out certain kind of issues, and uh, work on that on both sides. So such policy efforts uh, support uh, both sides to shape ideas about conflict resolution and gradually develop social learning that contribute to the onset, of, onset and maintenance of stable peace in the post-termination years for example, you can see European Union. So until uh, World War II, they were fighting among each other. But after the formation of a stable peace in the and, and having a European Union, they're trying a successful model. Right now, they are negotiating their differences. They are not going back to, uh, you know, uh, to military means to, you know, having a violent engagement on their differences. Right now, they are engaging on the negotiation uh, by using negotiatory institutions, by engaging, by having certain kind of norms. So they are not going back to the violent means. In the same pattern, I am seeing that if India and Pakistan after termination attain stable peace, so then there is a possibility that they will not fall back to these violent interactions which they are uh, pursuing since the independence when they have started the rivalry or the conflict with a one bullet, but right now we have such devastating weapons called as nuclear weapons. They have a cataclysmic effect if both countries would engage in a in a, such a you know uh, large scale war, uh, inadvertently or advertently. So this is what actually understanding what I mean. So both sides need to uh, march towards you know uh, a, a fresh future by 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 not overburdening uh, uh, to themselves with the baggage of the partition and they need to move ahead by having this kind of sensibility that world is moving on on knowledge based economic system and where they have their future so they need to work on that not only on that 
that uh, there are only two countries in the world and they have to secure most of the uh, their interests by fighting with each other so from that perspective actually i have proposed my uh, framework interesting interesting okay dr maham we have one question that we ask absolutely everybody that comes on the podcast and that is what is it to think globally for you I would like to, you know, uh, take uh, uh, India's position because uh, uh, how India thinks globally, you know, from that perspective. Uh, I think that uh, India uh, is a, you know, largest state in South Asia and the whole of South Asia, the Indian subcontinent is Indo-centric. And right now, as we have discussed uh, beforehand, that India is, you know, the largest populated state in the world. And India and China combines forms actually the 40% of world's population around. So I feel that India has a major role as a uh, democratic state, uh, developing the, means a developing state with a very, uh, not too much rigorous, but actually, you know, uh, uh, quite successful model of democracy. And we have noticed actually most of the Asian and African states, whenever they want to be like a state, they look towards India. So India has a larger responsibility in the international uh, in the international platform. So India needs to think globally, moving moving out of the you know, small regions. Though actually all the uh, all the regions collectively form the world. So, but I feel that India need to think globally, and if India wants to move in that direction, India has to, as I have already said, its uh, its uh, human resource need to be skillful. It, its human resource uh, should be trained uh, in the modern technologies, in the modern education, and India need not to fall back to the its previous history from last two thousand five hundred years, because if we look back to the histories, then it is tough to move. Format. So, if India sets some kind of targets for itself by 2040 or 2047, when India is going to be 100 years old uh, as a modern state, or uh, it is going to celebrate its 100th year of independence by 2047. So, I think if India move in that direction, this would be a greatest service to the international, uh, sorry, the the whole world, most of the states, and. Uh, uh, India will be evolved as really a global player and if India is thinking in this direction so globally we are going to contribute and India will be one of the most uh, sustainable state if it moves towards the knowledge economy to, to renewable energy and in such kind of other fields. So I feel that uh, India uh, can think by doing, by taking these kind of steps automatically we can contribute. Uh, towards you know thinking globally, thinking beyond region, and uh, be a asset for the society as well as region, as as well as for other regions and uh, for globe or for world itself. So I think my perspective from Indian side to think globally is that to be on the right track to contribute the world, not only India, by uh, by joining the uh, uh, the global ascendance in the form of this sustainable uh, technologies by in fact india has a larger role to play in the climate change discussion as well as in the climate change policies uh, having a larger population so it has a responsibility 
to protect its uh, renewable resources and those resources which are not renewable. So uh, I think the thinking global from India's perspective is to move in this direction. Mm, okay. As per usual, completely different answer to everybody else. We always love that. <laughs> but sadly, that's all we have time for today. So thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Mahan. It's been absolutely lovely to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving me an opportunity. And it is a really good platform. And I would like to think globally from tomorrow onwards, uh, not only bilaterally, because your platform is a fantastic one. I have just gone through it. Thank you so much for making me uh, so so convenient while uh, having a discourse and being uh, part of a larger family that is e-international relations and thinking global. Thank you so much. I like that. That was really interesting. Okay, Ed, what did you think? I thought Dr. Mohan's assessment of the Indo-Pakistani rivalry was inspiring to say the least. Mohan's insistence of a bilateral peace approach between India and Pakistan in an era of power politics in the greater Asian continent as a noble call to improve the futures of both nations. His complex rivalry method synthesizes a plethora of scholarship on the topic, drawing a much clearer picture in both their respective relationships and the greater Asian region. Yeah, I would thoroughly recommend it. It's a great read. You can go check that out on the University of Michigan Press page. There is a link in the description box below. So at Thinking Global, we are attached to E-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. If you haven't already been there, go check it out at e-ir.info. There you'll just be able to find literally tons of content with new articles, new features, new interviews every single day. So if you haven't already been there, please, please go look at that. <laughs> I'd also like to take the time to thank the rest of the podcast team. This particular episode would not have been possible without them. That is Ismail Aden, Tusharika Decker, Nigel Huckle, Abigail Glynn, Eduardo Pironi, and Daniel McDade. Thanks, guys. You are absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so, so, so much. Also, before I leave you, don't forget, if you haven't already done so, to click on that little like, share, subscribe, or follow button. You can also find International Relations on social media. Music was by Material Music. And I'd also really, really, really like to thank Edward Curry, who joined me on this one. Thanks, Ed. It was absolutely fantastic. And now you know a little bit more about cricket, which is good. <laughs> no, it's not croquet. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ed. As always, fantastic co-host. It's been a pleasure to be back on. Have a good day. You too, Ed. Have a great one. And so there's only one thing left to say. Thank you ever so much for everybody that's joined us. And together, we've been... Thinking, Thinking Global. Global. <laughs> Cricket is croquet. <laughs>